Month of the year is almost over. We'll have uh, two episodes of Survival Podcast, the 30th and 31st of January, and we'll be into February. Time's marching on. How are you working on your individual liberty, folks? You're either getting more free or less free every day. It's your choice which way you go, but you don't have a choice. You're going to move one direction or the other because time moves. Nothing is stationary. Nothing is stagnant. You're either working for your freedom or you're not. I hope you are. I want to light a little fire under you today. I put out some really crappy news on Twitter and Facebook before I started recording the show today. So I want to make you motivated uh, to deal with that crappy news, which was about how much money the world is printing. We'll save going into that deeply until Monday. Uh, but I also promise to try to make today's show exciting and interesting after I put that somber note out. But, uh, you know, it is time for you to take this stuff seriously. I put out a video this week on downward class migration. I think it's time for you to take that seriously. I think there's a lot of time left, more than most of the hypesters would tell you. But the writing's on the wall. The end game is near. And when I say the end game is near, what I mean is a dramatic shift in the economic structure of the world and where the United States fits in it is near. And in, in this type of timelines, 5 to 15 years is near. And the time to do something about it is today. I don't care what age bracket you're in, you're probably going to run up against this on some level. Uh, but we have some really great stuff today because today's show is not about all that doom and gloom stuff. It's all about your calls, and we have all kinds of cool calls that came in today. Uh, this today's show, being a Friday show, is for people to pick up their phone uh, sometime during the preceding week or two weeks and, and mash numbers. And those numbers you mash are 866 T-H-I-N-K, 866-65-THINK. Leave your message in two minutes or less. Do it from a clear, quiet area with a good connection on a cell phone if you're not using a landline, and I'll try to get your call on the air. Another note, sometimes I talk about noise and all, I'm going to let that go for a while. I think I've said it enough, but there's one caller who keeps calling in. I love you, dude. I love you, I love you, I love you. You've been around with the show for years, but your calls are not usable. When, guys, when you call in, you need to know what your question is. You need to get to the point. You need to do it quickly. You can't be like, um, I, uh, and I tried. And and that's three-minute long calls like that. I can't use that call, dude. I want to answer your questions. You know who you are. Write down what your actual question is. Get it into two sentences. Call back and spit it out, and I'll answer your questions, man. All right. With that, before we go to your questions, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor, the first survival podcast sponsor. That's almost four years ago now, almost. Four years sticking with a podcast as a sponsor. What does that say about Safe Castle? That says they love you guys. They really support what we do, and maybe you should give them a little bit of love back. They also provide 
Their Discount Buyers Club, which is $49 for absolute free lifetime membership to all members of the Members Support Brigade. They have everything you could possibly be looking for for your prepping needs, from tactical stuff to long-term storage food, everything else you can think of. Check them out today. Their website is at prepared.pro.pro. Best way to find them and all our sponsors, of course, go to survivalpodcast.com. Click on their banner in the right-hand margin. Next up today, backyardfoodproduction.com. That's Marjorie down there south of Austin. Um, I'll tell you what, you want to know how to turn your backyard into a food production machine? Get their DVD. If you don't have it, I know I've been talking about it for years, and some of you guys think, man, do these guys have anything else? They do. They actually have a new DVD called Alternatives to Dennis, and they have one called Growing Your Groceries, and they're going to be uh, changing their advertising up a little bit soon. I just got a care package today from Archery with one of their new DVDs in it, and I bet it's going to be great. But if you don't have the original DVD yet, you need to get it. It needs to be part of your knowledge library. Again, it's called... Food Production Systems for a Backyard or Small Farm, and you can find it at BackyardFoodProduction.com. Next up, remember, you can support the show by joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that. You support the show at 20 cents an episode, and uh, you can join simply by going to the Survival Podcast and clicking on Members or the Member Support Brigade banner. Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, Active Duty, or Prior Service, email me before you join. Give me a few details about your service and I will send you a special discount code to thank you for your service that will apply to your membership, uh, both your initial cost and your renewal fees as well. With that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show and take the first call. Hi, Jack. Uh, this is Shannon from California. Uh, this is sort of a suggestion and comment um, about that story about Greece. Um, I, I think that a lot of people in, in this country reading the comments and just generally from my experience, don't really understand the difference between being poor, like poor in America, and poor like poor in, say, Morocco, which is a place that I've been where there's real poverty. You know, there's a point where, you know, uh, you can't just go and deal drugs to support your children because everybody's broke and the supply and demand says that the drugs aren't worth anything. Um even the kids in the ghetto in Los Angeles, the reason why they make all of that money is because they have rich people to sell the drugs to. When there are no rich people, there's nobody to get rich off of. Um, when I went to Morocco, uh, I, I wanted, I needed a cardboard box, and I couldn't get a free one like you can here because everybody wanted to sell it for 20 cents because nobody had any money. And, uh, you know, in other countries, there, a lot of people were chastising these Greek people for leaving their kid on the street, but I, I don't think that what they understand it, I think what they don't understand is that it's a choice between not being able to feed any of your four children or having one less and being able to keep the other three alive. So, it's it's just a comment I wanted to make, and I think it would make for an interesting show topic for you to go over the differences between, you know, uh, endemic poverty, you know, where it's just everywhere, and uh, the kind of poverty that we think of in America where... One guy is poor. Yeah, and for those who didn't hear the episode that uh, Shan is referring to, I, talk, I put out a story about people basically abandoning their children on the steps of orphanages and in the streets of Greece. And um, 
I want to tell you that I think that the situation is even more dire than what Shannon was laying on. He's talking about having like three kids and having to give up one so you can feed the other two. And how would you make that choice? Um, I'm telling you this. I think there were people over there that had one kid and they were giving up one and they were going home to starve and die themselves. I think that's the choice that they were making. They had nothing, nothing, nothing. And I, I kind of snapped out and said that some of the comments that were made on Facebook and Twitter uh, and in the actual story comment section, some of you people, and I snapped out when I said it should be ashamed of yourselves. I want to, just so you know, because there were a couple people really pissed off at me and sent me hate mail and left me hate comments and, I don't care if you don't agree with me, Jack. Oh, shut up. It's not that you don't agree with me. I don't care that you don't, I don't, I didn't give a damn that some people said I would never do that with my kids. I understand that. That's what I said. I would never do it. I also said I don't know that because I've never had to deal with what these people are dealing with. Let me tell you the comments I snapped out about. These people should be hung. That's what one of you said. You in our audience. Not some random ass clown on the UK uh, Telegraph. But one of you people on my Facebook pages said the parents should be hung and murdered in the streets. These people are filthy, disgusting trash. And they should be abandoned. That's what you guys were saying. Something not all of you. I'm not beating up on all of you. That's why I snapped out. You people that said things like that, you have no freaking clue. And that's what Shannon's talking about. And even though what I said in the intro about some people going a little long, I let Shannon's go long because I think this is important. You don't know what poverty is. Nobody in the United States of America today that's never been outside of our borders, nobody here actually understands what global poverty is. Even if you think you know because you saw it on the TV, if you haven't been there, you don't know. I spent six months in Honduras in a place called the Aguan River Valley in the middle of nowhere. I've seen real poverty. What I try to explain in the video I just did on downward class migration is the reason that we have what we call the poor in the United States and they live actually a pretty decent life. I'm not saying poor people got it made. I mean, don't twist my words and try to say something stupid like that. But compared to poor people in, as this guy said, Morocco, yeah, they do. And that's because in this country, we have the resources. The reason you can get a free cardboard box instead of paying 20 cents for it here is we have plenty of unused cardboard boxes. We have a surplus of resources. If you have any amount of money in your pocket today in America, you can find food. You can go get the dollar menu at McDonald's if you have to. With a couple bucks, you can get a meal. There are nations where even if you have a few dollars in your pocket or the equivalent, you can't get a meal because there is no food. It is not there. And I think some of you people that right now are turning your nose up And talking trash about people in other parts of the world where the economies have not just fallen, they have literally caved in on themselves and completely obliterated themselves to the point where it's not just that people are unemployed, it's not just that people are on the dole now and living on one-tenth of their income, that there isn't the stuff. Either you don't have enough money for the food or even when you do, the food is not there. And I think that it really is something you need. I promise to be motivating today. I'll get there. I'm not right now. But I am motivating in a different direction. You need to understand what it's like to actually be without resources. If you want to say, I'm a prepper, and I'm preparing for a fail of systems, you have no idea, most of you. I don't mean to be a dick about this, but you really don't. Most pe And the people that are saying stuff like, these parents should be hung, one guy said they should be set on fire. 
That's what the, the, the lady that left her child on the steps of an orphanage should have been doused with gasoline and set on fire. That's why I snapped out. Because you're a dumbass. And I wanted to say a word I never say on this show. Well, it starts with an F after that dumb. Because that's what you really are and you know what it is. So I'm sorry I had to start out today. And I didn't think I was, I was going to be all calm about this. But the more I think about it, the more it pisses me off. Because the people in this audience, you guys, more than anybody else, should know how desperate people can become. You shouldn't look down your nose at someone else who's had to make what is probably the most horrific choice they've ever made in their life. And what I don't think you guys understand is when these people, you know, quote unquote, abandon these children, they're abandoning them mostly. I think there was one there that was like she's left in the streets. And that lady probably should go to jail at minimum, right? But most of what was going on there, these people were like putting them on church steps and in, on, on orphanage steps. It was more of a somebody else, please do something for my child because I can't. And in the mind of the parent doing that, they're thinking, well, they might make it here, but they won't make it with me. I can't feed them. Some of these people literally are going home and starve to death. Please get that in your head because it'll motivate you to make sure it never happens to you so that you can confidently say, no matter what happens, I'll never do that to my children. Well, if you are prepared, you won't ever have to make the choice. But let me tell you, there can come a day that where, where people are going to have to make that choice in this country. Don't think it can't happen because this is America. There are a few places in the world you would have preferred to go on a vacation other than Greece five years ago. A few places. You would have went there and said, this place is awesome. Been there, dudes. I know. It looked like paradise. And it became paradise lost overnight. And we are on the same track. I'll try to be a little more motivational and a little less in your face as we go forward today. But guys, please, please, when you are feel tempted to talk shit about somebody else in a tough situation, please think before you type or open your mouth. Please think that could be me or that could be somebody I care about and love. Because it can be. Hopefully it never will. But don't ever mislead yourself and believe that it can't be. And I do think that most Americans have no idea what actual poverty really means. Poverty is not, damn, I'm going to be hungry when I go to bed tonight. It's, damn, I might be so without food that I might not wake up in the morning. That's true poverty, and a lot of people in the world live with it. We're very blessed here in a lot of ways, but a lot of those blessings we have taken for granted. Please don't take them for granted, and please don't take for granted the opportunity you have now to make sure that you can confidently say, that won't be me. Because... The other side of that is there's people that you probably care about that you'll never be able to make that statement for them because if they don't take action, you can't do it for everybody else. All right, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Daniel from Colorado. I was calling because I was curious what your advice would be for concealed carry alternatives. Um, in Colorado, you have to be 21 to purchase a handgun and or get a concealed carry permit, and unfortunately, I'm only 18 I am a big proponent of concealed carry and will as soon as I can, but until that time, I was just wondering what I could do to best myself for the situation if it arises. So thank you very much. Love the show. Bye. Okay, um, here's the basics that you can carry as far as stuff that most people, especially over the age of 18, and just in most states can carry, and sometimes there's limitations on size of any one of the three. A knife, a coubaton, 
and pepper spray. And I recommend that you carry those three things. And I recommend even if you carry a gun, you carry at least two of them. You can take your pick. I believe pepper spray is a great one, though, OC or, or pepper spray, either or. Um, the Cubiton and, uh, and a knife. And I recommend everybody carry a knife anyway. I also want to kind of reinforce this with some additional things. One, I think that everybody should go take some general self-defense training and learn how to defend yourself. And I actually think there's a niche in self-defense training for a, a, a training that is specifically designed to extricate yourself from the situation, not to, not to win the fight, not to engage, to disengage, to disengage quickly, to withdraw quickly, um, to do damage upon withdrawal. And I think a lot of martial arts have those techniques in them already. Uh, uh, Hakido definitely has quite a few methods of holds and twists that can be used that way to cause injury, harm, and pain, but then to, to disengage. Um, the problem that most I have with most martial arts-minded individuals is the better they get, the more arrogant they become. Until they hit, and I want to be fair, until they hit a level of wisdom. And most most guys that progress through the arts is they get up into the advanced uh, levels and spend more time and think more. They tend to become wise. And that also just comes with age and maturity. But a lot of folks that are fairly good martial artists, especially late teens, early 20s males, you get arrogant and you get stupid. right? And then what happens is if you do end up in a confrontation and you don't need to rely on a handgun and you do rely on hand-to-hand -hand combat or maybe the use of something like a Kubaton, your arrogance is, I can take this guy. You know, you, even you don't even underestimate him. You're just thinking, I, so now you've got the situation under control and you could extricate yourself and you don't. And guess what happens? Law enforcement responds and considers you to be the aggressor. The owner of the establishment that you're in sees you as the aggressor. Those are bad, but they're not as bad as they could be. The guy's best friend walks up behind you while you're engaged with him and sticks a knife in your back. How, how's that? So the martial arts thing I'm going to caveat with saying, make sure that you're adding to that situational awareness. Additionally, for everybody carrying or not, Frank Sharp's golden rule. We don't go to stupid places and do stupid things with stupid people. Um, that will defuse a lot of situations. Um, the situational awareness thing as well, it needs to be high. And you need to look like you're prepared at all times. People that look like they're prepared, not paranoid, but confident, tend not to attract uh, aggression from others. Aggressive people generally like to prey on the weak. That's what they do. If you look at the classic schoolyard bully that needs their face pounded to learn a lesson, um, generally they pick on the weakest kids in the school. They don't go pick on, you know, the, 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 the dope head, uh, bad, bad boy, dumbass bully doesn't go pick a fight with the captain of the football team. It, I guess it happens occasionally, especially on made for TV specials or whatever. But no, usually what they do is they go find the little kid that wears glasses that, you know, is 20 pounds or 30 pounds under the average weight. And then the bully's 30 or 40 pounds over. That's who they pick on. Criminals are the same way. It's not that there aren't some of the, you know, the gangbanger machismo bullshit where two guys, oh, that guy's a big guy. That exists out there. Right, But it's not the predominance of danger and crime. The predominance of danger and crime is somebody thinking, I can get what I want from this person, whether it's I'm just a sick person and I want to harm people or I actually want to steal from them quickly without risk. That's a calculation made even when it's not thought about by the criminal. So the way you carry yourself is a, is a big thing. The other thing is 
when you're traveling about, there's, you know, in the military, what they call, you know, they call it the buddy system, for God's sakes. Um, you know, when you're in school and all, they tell you, you want to go into town, fine, take somebody with you. Do not go alone. That's a good rule for everybody. Two is more than the sum of its parts. Two can see the guy coming up behind you when you're engaged with a problem. So uh, traveling in groups of two or more is another great idea, especially in any situation where you're more likely to be at risk. Think about what you're doing. Um, if you pull up to like a store and it's in a neighborhood you've never been in before, try to park close to the store in a well-lit area, especially if it's in the evening, and move quickly into the store and back out of the store. When you go to put stuff in your vehicle, do it quickly. I mean, I can tell you to carry the, you know, the three things that you could probably carry anywhere, but the actions will be more likely to keep you alive and keep you from having need of these things in the first place. And it's you know, a perfect example of, of balancing logic and reason against you know just what you normally do. When I go to the Walmart store that's between here and my house, uh, I like to walk as much as possible, keep as much natural exercise in my life as possible. So I, I park it like the furthest thing out when I walk to the store. Now, that would seem to break my advice. Well, I know the area. It's well lit. It's the daytime. It's a bunch of old people out of Hot Springs Village. It's not a bad area. If I were to go to a store in a bad area, I would not do that for the exercise. I would do exactly what I told you. Uh, but the best things I can tell you to carry, again, pepper spray, a cubiton, uh, and a knife. And the most valuable one of the three really is the pepper spray because you can use it without making contact. And you want a good pepper spray that has a good range. And uh, I, I am a big fan of Cold Steel Inferno. It seems to have a lot less overspray spray problems. You end up with a lot less of it getting on you when used in a natural situation, and it's damned effective. Uh, and I'll say it again because I have to every time I bring it up. Every one of you is going to say, I knew this guy in Special Forces. Shut up. Just shut up. I, I know a guy that was shot in the chest at point-blank range. Honest to God, know the guy. Uh, shot in the chest at point-blank point blank range. This guy was a black belt in some martial art. And he grabbed the gun after being shot in the chest. At, again, 357, right lung, point-blank. Grabbed the gun from the guy, broke the guy's fingers, punched the guy in the face, knocked him the hell out, called 911, told the cops where he was, and says, I don't have time to wait for you. You better get here before he comes to. Got in his car and drove himself to the emergency room. Does that mean a 357 isn't a good piece of hardware for self-defense? If you think that one story negates it, then you're probably the person that thinks pepper spray is not worth carrying either. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. I'm a pilot. I hate saying that. Anyway, this is Jay. I'm wondering if you have heard of the USDA's National Agricultural Classification Survey. I received one in the mail. The letter says I've been identified as someone who may have some agricultural activity. And I'm wondering how they came to that conclusion. I live high on a mountain. I face north, heavily treed lot, uh, very little rain, very cold, 92-day growing season. And I'm in town, in an HOA for crying out loud, on about a quarter-acre lot. And there just isn't much chance I could do any ag activity there. So I'm wondering, do they target me in some way by... All I can think of is maybe my email. As a, as a little joke, I have an email address that kind of hints that I have a huge spread of some sort. So is there some government cubicle where they're searching the Internet with robots or something looking for keywords, farm, ranch, grow, for that matter, gun, freedom, you know, any other 
words like that that they are trying to track us down and uh, you know put us in some kind of a I don't know so they can follow us in some way I've never heard of this thing before and I'm just wondering uh, what you might have to say about it thanks well the basic answer to how they came to that conclusion is it doesn't really matter it's not really a big deal it's not like they're trying to um, to do anything to you or harm you with this thing What that survey is about is getting an understanding of how much agriculture is going on, what type of agriculture is going on, and what's important. See, your government wants to make sure that its marketing to you is spot on. So if they know that there's a lot of beekeepers in an area, they might make funds available for beekeeping studies to that area, and they would also probably use it in their campaigning for re-election in that area to mention that they did that. So it's a combination of actual government services based on agricultural needs and a desire to know what we're up to so that they can sell to us based on what we're interested in. And that's really what that program's about. Now, how, how they came to that conclusion... They don't freaking know. My understanding from talking to people that have dealt with these folks is they really have no clue, and the government's already provided estimates to them of how much is going on in a given area, and generally when they go out there, the estimates are high. There's less going on than they think there, and they can't find the numbers to add up, so they just start asking people. Uh, and, you know, let's say that maybe um, they also survey seed companies. And let's say that one day you requested a catalog from a company like Seedway, which really mostly sells to commercial growers. And you didn't know that. You didn't know they usually sell seed by the pound uh, rather than the packet. You just wanted the catalog, so you requested it, and you probably forgot about it long ago. Well, they might report in their customer list that to the, the same survey that these are people that we market to. I don't know if that's the case or not, but I know one thing about us as a society, a uh, community, as preppers. We have a belief that any time the government asks any questions, they're trying to get us, man. That's not what this is about. It's really not. This is not tied to any kind of freaking eugenics program or any other Alex Jones shit. It, it's just a department of government that probably does not need to exist, uh, trying to basically take a census of the nation's agricultural activity, which actually, to be fair to the government, which it's very hard for me to do, uh, but at times I have to, it's actually pretty important that we know this. Uh, being able to afford, you know, we talked earlier about poverty. Well, what's the one thing that'll kick everybody into poverty? Food shortages. Being able to forecast the, the, the agricultural productive output and accounting for local food production that's generally, let's call it, off grid from the big high production quantities to know that it's there for emergency planning, for shortfall planning, for things like that is a valid function of at least the type of government we have today. There's, there's, so it's nothing that's a big deal, and you can do one of three things with it. You can answer it to the affirmative, saying basically I do have some type of agricultural activity, and give them a very in-depth description of whatever that may be, like I grow one tomato plant. Uh, you can send it to file 13, which is a nice way of saying just throw in the trash and forget about it, or you can respond to it in the negative. And I don't think it really is going to be that big a deal either way. They have bigger fish to fry than worry about whether or not you're growing tomatoes. It's not that they care. It's to try to get a picture of the landscape of agricultural production in the country. Um, and personally, I would probably just discard it. 
unless there was something on it that says I am required by law to respond to something, I probably would not respond to it. The less I put on record with anybody, the less that could ever be turned around and used against me. And I don't know what would be used against me. That's not the point. Why Why provide, you know, I, if I answer this thing in the affirmative, is it a possibility that during an emergency FEMA would decide that maybe they need to come take a look at what I'm producing and maybe redistribute my food to people that need it? I don't know. Maybe. I don't. I really don't know. I really don't. And I don't think it is, but I'm, it's also, even if it's a 1% chance, why bother with it? Unless I'm a commercial producer, none yet, which means none yet business. All right, let's take another call. Hey, Jack, it's Jesse G. from Denver. Uh, it's about Groundhog's Day, and that's the time of year that I like to do my garden planning, planning what I'm going to put where. Um, I actually have two calls for you because they're two related tips, and I couldn't figure out how to get them both in, in a short time. My first tip is about attracting honeybees to your garden. I like to plant radishes early in the spring. I plant about double the amount of radishes that I need. Uh, I would recommend that you do the same. Uh, plant them in all your gardens if you have more than one garden. Plant them all over the place. Then as you're harvesting, only ha harvest about half of them from each spot. So you have radishes growing all over the place. This does use up space, but it's well worth it uh, because radishes have a collection of features that I, I don't, no other plant really has that seems to make them ideal for attracting bees. First of all, you can get them in the ground first thing in spring when the ground is about 40 degrees. It can be mucky, slimy, it doesn't matter. Uh, the seeds will germinate in about a week and produce in about 21 days. After that, uh, the radishes will turn really woody and basically inedible, but they'll produce a stalk that will end up growing about four feet tall. It'll be covered in tons of little purple and yellow flowers. And the honeybees love them, absolutely go crazy for them. Uh, and this will usually be around mid-April. I don't know where it will be in your part of the country, but in Denver that's where it, about the time of year that this happens. And that's when the honeybees are just starting to come out of their winter dormant period. They're out looking for food, and uh, if your you know, garden is covered in flowers, there's not a lot else blooming. You might have grape hyacinth and stuff like that, but nothing that the honeybees are really going nuts for. So you get yourself established sort of in the little hive mines, and uh, you'll have honeybees coming from all over the place. If you're really lucky, you'll actually have honeybees coming in from different directions. That's how you can tell you've got multiple hives, and that's when you know you're in really good shape. You know, it's really interesting the synergy uh, that the audience has with each other and with me at times. So last night, I was thinking I need to plant some stuff to start getting some flowering stuff out onto the property. And I thought to myself, you know, Jeff from the, Jeff the Berkey guy from Directive 21 sent me a couple uh, emergency seed banks. And I know there's radishes in those, so I went to open both of them. And there's two big giant packages of champion radish. And they're both sitting on the table... And one of my little projects this weekend is to go plant radishes freaking everywhere on my property. What's unique about that for me is I'm pretty much doing it only uh, for the reasons that the caller mentioned, uh, for beneficial insect attracting and for just basic polyculture and for organic matter production. Like you said, I don't think most people realize that you need a little radish, you know, and we usually pull them when they're about six inches tall, seven inches, eight inches tall, and they have a little, you know, radish bulb on the bottom of them. Uh, so understanding how big the plant actually gets, unless you've let it happen, I don't think most people realize. And the, the flowering is absolutely intense. I also have planted 
all over in kind of like these areas that I'm going to be planting trees in very soon, uh, a ton of what are called oil seed radish, which are designed specifically for that. You can also produce oil from them, uh, and we'll just see how they go. And I have a lot of, I have a big polyculture going there. I have strawberry, clover, I have barley, I have all kinds of stuff, uh, mustard and, and other things in that mix. Uh, but radishes definitely, and I'm going to start plugging them into all different places in, you know, my garden beds and just in the property. Uh, and this time of year when it's really, really wet, uh, they will germinate, they will handle frost, and as they begin to come up and they put down while it's wet, you know, we think of the radish root as being a bulb, and it is, but it ends up with a very long, very thin, but very powerful tap root, even if we don't go to things like daikon uh, or oil seed radish that have the more penetrating tap root, even a standard garden variety radish um, has a huge tap root. And you can go, and, and radish seed germinates very, very highly. You can go buy the cheapest damn radishes at Walmart or, you know, your dollar store or whatever like that, especially this time of year when they're bringing in fresh seed packets and they'll grow. And for four or five bucks, you can plant hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. And they are a great plant for pollinators and beneficial insects. Let me tell you what else they're good for. They're an awesome trap crop. A lot of things like whitefly and flea beetle and things like that really like radishes. Why would you plant what they like? Because they'll go there and eat that instead of your lettuce and your spinach. Um, root nematodes also tend to uh, go in and eat radish. And radish tends to be like something they really like to eat. And some of them, they eat it. And then guess what? The little suckers die. Uh, and then when, you, when the radish gets to a point where you're ready to, uh, to harvest the organic matter and the flowering's done, and you cut the top and use that, if you pull the root up out of the ground and you compost the root... Um, then the little nematodes that are in there get composted and burned to death at 160 degrees. Isn't that great? Uh, or you can even leave them in the ground because they do have some nematodal effect even that way, especially if you plant them in combination with things like mustards, uh, with deep taproot mustards, deep, deep taproot daikon radish to go with them. But great call. Uh, this guy actually called back in and since he made two great calls, I'm going to play his two calls in a row. Let's take his next call on attracting bees. Hey, Jack, this is Jesse G. with Denver with my tip number two about honeybees. This is how you retain them throughout the season. Uh, I learned the hard way that you need to keep honeybees coming around. I had uh, a garden a few years ago where I was planting a lot of cucumbers. And uh, by some sort of fluke of timing, it turned out that all the cucumbers were the only thing in my garden that was blooming at that time. And I found out honeybees are sort of natural economists, and they know all about opportunity costs. And if they don't like what's in your garden, they're going to go somewhere else. Uh, my cucumbers that year, I, ha I had probably two dozen that went in my compost bin and about three that I actually ate because they tasted so bad. I found out later that that was a product of inadequate pollination. So um, what I learned uh, is that you got to have a lot of variety in your garden. <laughs> um, just by walking around and observing what honeybees were attracted to in my neighborhood, I found out that they really like lavender, They really like, um, you know, different types of flowers like uh, snapdragons. Um, you can observe in your neighborhood or you can even go to your local garden center and ask the employees there, what are honeybees attracted to? And then make sure to have that in your garden. Uh, that way, you know, honeybees will they'll come for the, you know, lavender or whatever it is that they like. And then if they see a big fat yellow blossom on a cucumber, well, they'll make it their way over there and, pollinate that too so my second tip is make sure to have a lot of different colors different fragrances blooming all season long anyway 
Thanks very much. I really love the show, Jack. Keep it up. Yeah, good stuff. And what it really comes down to is making sure you have flowering plants with good nectar yields um, in your garden year-round. I mean, that's that's all it comes down to. You can walk your neighborhood and see what the bees are interested in, and that's great. And it may be what they're really interested in, or it may be the best thing there. There may be even a better option. First, I'd like to say I believe that we have done immense damage to the honeybee population through the collective attempt to eradicate a single plant that should never be eradicated, and that is the dandelion. Um, America's passionate hatred for the dandelion is completely irrational. Uh, it makes no flipping sense at all, and it is asinine on its face. It is one of the most preferred plants to bees. And just like the guy was talking about radishes earlier, the, the dandelions will flower right about the same time radishes will. They're a very early flowering plant, but they will continue to flower later in the season, especially in certain areas. So I think that's a big thing. Clover in your lawn and let it grow for more than a freaking week before you mow it. Um, we had a, about an acre in Pennsylvania, and it was a mix of grass and white Dutch clover. And I had a neighbor that would cut my grass for me. And he wanted to cut it like once a week. And I'm like, Joe, I need you to cut it about once every three weeks, and that is all. And his thing was he wanted to keep it looking perfectly manicured because he was a landscaper. And he would like freak out. He's like, oh, you get all the clover blossoms and all. I'm like, dude, I like the clover blossoms. And that's when the rabbits would be out there like crazy. And you, when you walked in the field, there were bees Everywhere, because guess what? They love clover blossoms. So dandelion and clover in your lawn will help you through some of the other lean times as well. Um, then another tip I have for you guys, when you want to figure out what the bees are really attracted to, and I noticed this kind of by accident one time. We were putting a bunch of perennial flowers, and we were just picking what we liked from a local nursery in Arlington. And we wanted to do kind of a bed of nothing but perennials so that it would come back year after year after year and be beneficial insect uh, uh, habitat. But that we wouldn't have to keep replanting it over and over again. We had a couple areas we'd pop a few marigolds in every year and what have you. But we wanted the majority to be uh, perennials. So we go out and they have, you know, in the, in the spring when everybody's selling, they have a lot of the stuff just set up in, you know, huge amounts of it out like a parking lot, open areas, and it, the bees have access to it. Well, when we walked by the blue salvia sage, they were literally coated. It looked like, you know, like sometimes you see like a TV show where the guy like puts a chemical on and the bees like get on his face like a beard. They were like bee beards on the salvia. They were like when you picked it up, you had to like kind of like gently shake it and like, okay, guys, this one's mine now. And they were, they were practically follow, you know, you'd walk away with it and they're freaking following it. Um, so this is why that was such a good thing. It wasn't just they liked it. But they were, it was in a place surrounded by other flowers. So when they had a choice of anything, that's where they went. So as you might imagine, we made it kind of a staple in our landscape for the area. Will it work as well here? I haven't gotten that far here yet. I don't know. But what I do know is if this spring I go down to a local nursery and I look at all the different flowers and one of them swarming with bees... There's a good one. And it's not, again, it's not just a good one because they like it. It's that they have a preference for it. So then I want to look at bloom times, when it blooms, how long it blooms. And the beautiful thing with blue salvia is it blooms like from late spring to fall. So it's always there. And we always had bees on that. And we always had a lot of other pollinating insects, insects, flies, mason bees, mason wasps, things like that. So make sure with your pollinator uh, habitats, 
you're not limiting yourself just to honeybees. Realize there's tons of pollinators out there, and they're all good to have around. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. This is AJ again. Uh, just to comment on something that happened the other day. We were sitting on the outside of a, a barricaded gunman situation, and, uh, of course, when the ERT responds, uh, they begin negotiations, and then uh, after a while, when somebody won't cooperate, they begin what they call a harassment phase. Uh, to try and force a conclusion uh, without bloodshed, and they pump a lot of chemical agents into a particular dwelling. Uh, a couple of things. Uh, one, it was an apartment complex. Two, uh, it was really windy. And, you know, our uh, our particular organization not having access to, you know, uh, personal protection equipment that would prevent uh, pepper spray or OC from... Uh, affecting the individual officers, some of the guys got a little taste. Well, it wasn't just us. Um, like I said, it was an apartment complex, and there were several other buildings downrange, and people got a little snootful of, you know, Bernie icky stuff. And I was just wondering what your thoughts were on a minimum level of protection, uh, preparedness for, um, you know, your average citizen, uh, that doesn't have normally have access, you know, is there any field expedient ways to protect yourself from chemical agents? Or, you know, what would be a minimum level of protection for a person that you think they should have on hand? Uh, just my curiosity. Um, and, by the way, we now have access to personal protective equipment uh, per uh, IDHS. So we're good. Just want to make sure everybody's good. Hey, thanks, and a great show. Bye. You know, I've always been one that says that owning gas masks is probably overkill, and if you're going to do it, it's one of your last things to do in your basic kit build-out. Um, this call alone has me thinking maybe there's a better case for it right there. It's not something I ever really thought of. Um, I don't see the day that, that the government comes out and starts launching gas canisters through my window. I don't know how much this applies to me there, but it could apply to me in an office space. It could apply to me in a vehicle. Um, and usually, you know, just being a military guy and being trained in biochem weapon defense, what they train you in, you know, unless you're like part of the MPs or something in your, or the guard and you're handling rioting, is not OC and CS. They, they use CS gas in the gas chamber to convince you your gas mask works. But what they train you about is stuff that will kill you dead in a really bad way. Um, one agent in particular that they talked about, I can't remember what it was, but a couple drops of it on your skin, and you would literally go to convulsions that were so violent that before it directly killed you, you'd probably snap your own spine and die. So when I hear about things like that, I think you know of a mop-level situation, and if we ever had that widespread, how realistic is that? You know, So I've always kind of downplayed that, but this call has me real rethinking that. Um, I would tell you that with the overspray situation, not a direct application, a simple respirator would, would do wonders. Even a really good dusk mask would help a lot uh, with minimizing the impact of overspray if you're in a situation like that. But nothing would beat a good gas mask. And they're getting more and more affordable. Uh, there's more and more options for them. I will say that there's certain things you need to do with gas masks. Learn all the functioning components of it. Learn anywhere that has any type of an O-ring uh, that can dry rot and go bad. Because if that goes bad, you might as well not be wearing it. Funny story for you guys. I was part of the Op 4. 
uh, during my time for one military exercise. That stands for opposing force. And as opposing force, we were the guys that came and harassed the rest of the people. We did things like one day we snuck in and took out the guards that were guarding the aircraft and wrote boom on three of the aircrafts with white shoe polish, technically disabling them. And then the referees had to make a decision uh, how long the aircraft would be out of service. And they had decided that since there was a critical mission they were training for, they negated what we did. And there was all little types of harassing things that we would do like that. Miles gear and go out and shoot at people and shoot back at you. Miles gear like laser tag on steroids for uh, military uh, weaponry. Well, we were getting ready to go to the field, and right before you go to the field, you usually have one really good chow, and one of the platoons had all of their gear grounded, uh, and they were eating, you know, like their bask, their everything was in the formation grounded, and uh, they had left a guy to guard the gear, and we're all in the same company and all, and he, this guy wasn't real bright, so two of us walked up to him and said, hey man, you can go eat chow, we're here to relieve you, so he wants to eat, he takes off. Um, we went to tearing gas masks out of gas cases, and we removed over half of the platoon's O-rings from their gas masks. And then to cover our asses, we put them all into a Ziploc bag. And we went and saw the first sergeant, and we said, hey, Top, um, they're your troops. It's up to you what you want to do with this. But, you know, this platoon, and we told them exactly what we did as part of the off 4 and we gave them the O-rings. That was how we covered our ass. And we said, you know, you can tell them to check and see if they do. You can just let them know what happened. You can do whatever you want, but it's up to you what kind of consequence. What he did is sat on it and decided that if anybody came to him or came to supply and said we're missing O-rings, they would backfill the situation. So the second night they were in the field, we started popping CS grenades all over the camp and in um, the, uh, the tents and things like that. And we naturally focused from our insider information on the area of the camp where that particular platoon was, and about half of them are throwing gas masks on and sucking gas in and, you know, snotting into their masks and puking into their masks and things like that, and it was a real lesson. Uh, but the lesson I'm giving you from that is, even if you go to having, like, a military-grade gas mask, they have points of failure, and things like O-rings are common points of failure that will wear out over time. Filters and O-rings you need to have st extra capacity for. So uh, if you're going to go that far, make sure you go far enough. Uh, if you buy an old piece of crap uh, gas mask and something happens, you put it on, don't be surprised if it doesn't work at all. So learn, you know, get a TM that goes along with the mask, a technical manual, and learn the areas that are common points of failure and get the extra parts for it. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Jen from North Carolina. Just experienced a situation that I was completely unprepared for. Our two heifer calves got out late yesterday afternoon. Our neighbor did not have our cell phone numbers, so when we returned late last night to see five messages flashing on the landline, we knew that something was wrong, and sure enough, the cows were gone. We called the police department to report them missing and then went to bed. No use looking for black cows at night. At first light, I began driving around. Where I saw lights on or cars warming up in the driveway, I stopped to tell them what was going on. I didn't have a business card with me or even a pen and paper. There I was asking for help, and I didn't have something to put in their hands to let them know how to get a hold of me should they see the cows. I'd like to suggest to the TSP community that a basic business card with pre-printed contact information and a pen or Sharpie belong in everybody's EDC kit. And if you have pets, farm animals or children, what would you do if one of them went missing? This can happen, and you can have a plan of action if you prepare for the possibility. 
I am grateful to God that my cows came back in one piece and didn't cause a car accident. Thanks, Dak. Okay, I'm going to comment on that because it's great, and I have some additional things to add with that. Um, but again, the synergy just drives me crazy. So this is going to seem unrelated at first, but it, it kind of is, and it's just another funny story. Last night, about 4 o'clock in the morning, uh, my wife wakes me up and goes, there's a sound. And I kind of hear the tail end of it. It kind of sounds like a, a mechanical sound, like a something like that. And as it just shuts off almost as I kind of wake up and I'm still groggy, I go, it's the heater. It's the furnace kicking on, you know, and kicking off to, 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 to keep the house warm. She goes, no, no, that's not what it is. It was outside. So a couple seconds later, I hear this, and I can tell now that it's outside. And I think, the hell is that? But it sounds miles away because it's so muted and muffled. And I get up out of the bed to go out, and I think to myself, I know this sound. We have a, not a blind, but a cross-eyed, deaf, stupid, retarded cat named Alice. She really is not very capable of taking care of herself as far as cats go. So she's an inside cat. And we don't let her out unless we like, we'll let her out sit in our lap or something like that. And we, we adore her. Don't think I hate her because I said that she was retarded and cross-eyed. She just is. Um, she has a, a hearing problem that makes me concerned with predators being able to attack her. Um, because if you call her name, she'll look 180 degrees the other direction. Like she doesn't hear the sound right or from the right direction. You can walk up behind her, clap your hands, and she doesn't even respond. That type of thing. Well, when we're outside, she wants out. She'll stand up and she like digs the window. I think I have this on video somewhere. I should put it on YouTube. It's just hilarious. She looks so funny. Well, she had escaped apparently when I walked the dogs right before bed. And she was outside digging on the door, and it was making the sound that sounded almost like a wind turbine turning or something like that. Because instead of scratching the glass, she was scratching the metal door uh, with this digging motion. So anyway, what do you do when an animal gets out? Sometimes you don't even know it till they come back, I guess. Now, on the, on the bigger note, um, yeah, I think first of all, and it's something maybe I've overlooked because I've always been a business person. So I always have business cards. You know, and, and I, I, my thing, you know, my wife carries my business card. And maybe that's not a good idea. You know, maybe my wife should have her own business cards. And, you know, maybe I should get some for my son and say, dude, carry these around. And you go, I'm just a bartender on the border. And that brings me to the point. I think most people that don't carry business cards have jobs where your employers deem it not necessary for you to have a business card. I think that's exactly why most... So, like, you live in this different world where you don't even think that way. Why would I need a business card for? I'm not wheeling and dealing, and I'm not looking to do speaking engagements or get people to come to my website, but you want people to be able to contact you. So when you're out and about and trying to get something done, and you say, if you see this, let me know, there's nothing easier than handing that person a business card. It's really probably one of the more powerful things that you can have to make sure people can get in touch with you in the future. And when it comes to building community, this is important as well. So you go to a meeting and you meet other people that are like-minded about prepping or gardening or guns or anything else. You say, you know, we should get together. And you forget the guy's name or whatever and, you know, send me your email and he does. Give him a business card. It's so easy. You don't have to have a company to have a business card. Just put your name and your basic contact information you're comfortable uh, disseminating that way. I would also tell you that a lot of people would say, well, I don't want everybody to have my cell phone number. Well, buy cards that have, you know, like the basic paper stock instead of the gloss or matte stuff. 
so that you can write on the back, and then that way you can give a card to somebody with just an email address and what have you on it, and if you have additional information, it's easy to write on the back of the card. If you're not going to put your full contact details, make sure you buy a card that allows you to do that. A pad and a pen belong in every bug-out bag and every glove box of every car, and probably a couple drawers in your home. Uh, there is a it's like there's no excuse for not doing that. We're talking about four or five bucks, and you could have them everywhere. Pads are cheap, pens are cheap. Um, somebody calls you on the phone, and it's a disaster that's happening to your family, and you need a number, and you're trying to find something to write. I mean, it's just it's just some, a situation you don't want to be in. Uh, you have to you have to bolt, and you need to leave a note. You don't have time to be looking for something. So uh, definitely with that as well. But um, you know. All I can say is a great call. And above all, I'm really glad you got your cows back, man. Um, you kind of waited till the end to tell me, and I kept thinking along the call. But I hope she got the cows back. Um, so a great way to make a call. Leave the, uh, the, 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 uh, the part everybody's waiting to hear till the end uh, and make the point all the way through. Thanks for that call. Let's go take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Russ from Covington, Louisiana again. Uh talk to you you got another dog question on your show uh later before you uh, you know i gave you a little heck about uh telling people they should get a great pyrenees which is a fast dying uh dog but as far as the guy who has bulldogs that are deemed as potentially dangerous i worked hurricane rita and i did operation blue roof over there as an inspector and i went to a lot of people's houses that had uh, mean dogs, and they weren't home. But I'm gonna tell you what: the meanest one, the mean, baddest one you ever see, all give up their belly for a regular old cheese Doritos. Doesn't give a damn. Doritos are the way. You like your kid? Give them Doritos. Give them to the bill dog. It's their best friend. Later. Yeah, I wasn't even going to answer this guy's uh, earlier call. In fact, I deleted about how Pyrenees die fast and they're full of problems and all because I, I hate to be this blunt with you, but on that one, you're completely, totally freaking wrong. They're actually um, highly free of a lot of problems that many modern breeds have because they're such an old breed that's been around for so long, so a lot of genetic dispositions and problems they don't have. Fast dying is relative. They have an average lifespan of about 11 uh, to 11 to 12 years. Uh, if you look up Labrador Retriever, you'll see an average lifespan of about 11 to 12 years. So I know somebody's going to tell me I have a Labrador that's 18 years old. Yeah, I got one that's 16. You know, so uh, there's no hard and fast rules, but big breeds don't live as long as small breeds, and the Great Pyrenees is a big dog. It's a good dog. Uh, I'm sorry. This fast-dying crap, whatever you're saying, you're just you're just wrong. Now, they're Doritos. Um, yeah, I think that it doesn't even have to be Doritos. Uh, if you feed a dog, you generally form a bond with a dog and create a friendship, and it's probably something that the guy that called in about the bulldogs next door uh, to his bug out location could do is if they start feeding those dogs, uh, you know, because here's the thing. Dogs look at people and say, are you an aggressor that I need to be worried about? Are you a danger or a threat that I need to bow up to? Or are you friendly? And if you, are you friendly to me and those that I care, the rest of my pack? Well, aggressors don't feed the the, the other aggressor. Aggressors respond with force, and they respond with aggression. 
So, and, and you also don't want to respond to an aggressive dog with fear, but if you can respond with confidence in food, generally that would be a good thing. Now, let me tell you one thing that may have skewed the results of the magic Dorito chip that, that the caller is talking about. Um, the dogs that you were dealing with that were left alone during an evacuation and had been there a while, they were really hungry, weren't they? Uh, they'd probably gone a long time without being fed. And the hungrier an animal is, the more susceptible they are to being fed and being made friends with. So it, if you're dealing with a dog that's really pissed off and wants to bite the crap out of you, an aggressive, dangerous dog, and you throw them some Scooby Snacks or even some Doritos, there's no guarantee right away uh, that that's going to diffuse the situation. So it's something that can be useful in making friends with dogs. I know whenever I have someone come over, uh, if Max is a little bit like, usually what happens is somebody comes over, And he's up and he's all angry and all. And I say, good, good dog, easy, it's okay. And he sniffs them and he's good. Every once in a while there's somebody where he's like, Brr. he still keeps great. He just doesn't like them for some reason. And I always worry about that person, you know, you know, come on now. But usually what I'll do is I'll hand him a biscuit and say, go give him the biscuit. And once that happens, he's, he's good to go, right? So there is definitely a bond that can be made there. But as far as Pyrenees being fast dying breeds, It's just not the case. They're a great dog. Uh, they provide great service for a lot of their owners. And uh, what I actually recommended was what Marjorie has, which is a Pyrenees Lab Cross, uh, which actually results in a somewhat smaller dog and lessens some of the common problems that both breeds inherently have uh, and provides some level of additional longevity that you get out of hybrid vigor. So there you go. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. My name is Martin. I'm uh, Rancher One School on the forum. Uh, I was wondering what your thoughts are on using uh, ground-up uh, wood chips, uh, a wood chipper instead of logs. I would think that it's not ideal, but uh, a friend of mine has a very large amount of these lying around his place. So I was wondering what your thoughts are on that. Um, love your show. Don't do your archives. I'm listening. I don't think I'm on like episode 50 or 60 right now. Anyways, uh, we'll see you soon. I keep getting the question. I'll keep giving the answer because apparently if the question's asked that much, then there's a lot of desire. Um, <clears throat> you didn't say how you wanted to use wood chips. So there's usually two ways that people contact me, actually three ways about using wood chips that people contact me about and want to know. The first would be for Google culture. So instead of using logs, which I think you said in your call, it's kind of hard for me to hear your full call well there. There's a lot of static and background. I got the gist of it. I think you mentioned logs. So now I'm thinking Google culture. So who culture, we take a bunch of logs, we put them in a pile, we bury them with dirt and humus and topsoil and, and compost, we plant into it and we get a good irrigation effect. All right. If you want to do that with wood chips, once again, it will work. It won't last as long as it would if you used, you know, whole logs in wood. I've had people email me about it causing acidification, um, which may actually be a beneficial. If you have alkaline soil and you want to grow something like uh, blueberry, you could use wood chip to help acidify the soil a little bit uh, in a given area. But let me tell you where that's coming from. Very, very smart people are telling me this because you guys are smart enough that you went out and read Sepp Holzer's book 
And in Sepp Holzer's book, he talks about how he used to use wood chips and he doesn't use it anymore. Here's One, he said the acidification level. Two, it did not work as well. Three, it caused soil compaction problems. Uh, and four, it took a lot more work because he had to grind the wood up. So let's take first the first one was, was the last one. He had to chop the wood up in his free. So you already have the wood chips. You don't have the problem he did. He was thinking, why would I grind up the wood when, I, when it works better whole? Why would I spend the energy? So that's a non-starter objection. Number two, when Sepp started using wood chips initially, he was tilling them into his soil. So he was making this mixture of soil and wood chips. When he went over to doing pure hugu culture, you're taking solid wood and covering it with dirt. That's totally different. Uh, because one of the things people always want to know about, what about turning wood chips into the soil? Don't do that. That will screw everything up. That will create compacted soil, and that will create acidification. Um, that is not how wood chips get used. So if you want to use wood chips for hugu culture, you can. It won't last as long in the system. That is the only real issue there. The best use of wood chips, about four to five to six inches deep of mulch. When you do that, only a very small bit of the wood is in contact with the, the top soil layer and the humus layer. That is the only place the wood is breaking down, so it breaks down very slowly over time as the pile declines in size. It takes up very little nitrogen per, let's say, per unit of time that way, so it works very well. The people who have done it all over the place, Paul Wheaton had a couple on that have just basically completely wood mulched their entire backyard. They produce a tremendous amount of food. They have all awesomeness in their results. Um, there, if you look at um, Back to Eden, there's a video I've recommended you watch a couple times. If you're not a religious person, it gets a little bit heavy with some scripture at time. Uh, it, it, so the guy's using scripture to explain why he thinks it works. And if that bugs you, man, get a life. You know, I'm not a deeply religious person, but somebody talking about re their religion doesn't bug me. Um, but when you look at the results the guy's having there, it's just freaking awesome. It really is. Um, and it's just nothing, and his whole system is nothing but wood mulch. So I would say for your hygge culture, try to stick to whole pieces of wood. And if you can find wood that's already fallen in the forest or been cut a while ago that's halfway into the decay process, so much the better it speeds things up. We just had uh, uh, Dave from Dave's Garden, or uh, actually it's All Things Plants Now, Dave Whittinger on, uh, talking about his results, and same results I'm having. I, I, I could not see taking good quality hardwood that could be cut into timber, used for construction and building, or at the very least used for firewood, and, and putting it into the ground when there's all of this available pre-cut, pre-fallen, partially rotted material that's out there and available. So uh, there's my view on wood chips. Great mulch. People that are worried about two things with wood mulch don't understand it. The big one is the nitrogen thing. Again, wood is not a nitrogen sink. It's a nitrogen trap. The nitrogen that it takes up, it eventually gives back. If we have to throw a double uh, a double helping of compost down to help get through the first stages of wood, do it. It's worth it. It's worth it a hundredfold. Uh, that nitrogen will be there for a long time. The next one is funguses. People worry about wood and funguses. Fungal hyphae are necessary for healthy soil. Let me say this again. Fungal hyphae are necessary for, 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 for healthy soil. When you look at a mushroom, or you look at a fungus growing on a tree, you're not seeing the fungus. You're seeing the fruit. 
Think of it like this. When you look at an apple, you don't see the apple tree. You see the apple. The tree is the plant. The apple is the fruit. This is how fungus works. Fungus is actually the, 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 the organism itself is a structure made up of, in a one cubic meter of soil, 600 kilometers. So to put that in, uh, you know, English terms, miles, a cubic yard has about 350 miles. A cubic yard of soil, 350 miles of soil high feet, if it's healthy soil. The fungus that you're creating with wood mulch is going to create relationships with your plants and basically become highway conveyor systems for nutrient transfer. So the two plants that can share nutrient don't necessarily need to be planted where their roots intermingle. The soil hyphae themselves become a nutrient transport component where legumes that are healthy and not stressed are still capable of diffusing some nitrogen in return for some other component that they need from another plant. So when people think fungus in agriculture, they think of things like blight funguses, and they think of uh, other funguses that attack our plants. Well, just like pests, that if we create a situation where only the pest insect can thrive, will be full of pests. That's what we do when we avoid mulching and say we want to prevent fungus. We create a system where soil-borne fungus like blight that attacks living plants can thrive, and the majority of funguses, which only actually feed on dead material, can't. There's no, there's nothing there for them. So we've created an optimal environment for funguses that attack living organisms, and we've created a system where we've totally wiped out the ability for the majority of funguses, which are decayers that only feed on uh, dead matter, to not exist. So the other funguses are free of competition on the fungal level. Isn't that great? And now all of my tomatoes have blight or I have, you know, uh, powdery mildew or whatever on, on my, uh, on my cucumbers or what have you. That's a big part of the problem. Mulch is golden. You want as much of it as you can get and wood is great. The big thing with mulch is don't turn it into the soil. And as much for, so if you had a choice between, I've used a lot of cypress mulch in Texas and it worked great. Uh, and I had a lot of fungal hyphae going on in the soil. You could see it. It was beautiful. Um, but what would have been better is to use a mulch that was made up of, you know, poplar and sweet gum and oak and birch and tulupo and pine and you name it. And people freak out about pine. Let me tell you something about pine and acid, folks. Green pine needles create acid. That's all. That's it. When you grind up brown pine needle, it doesn't hurt nothing. Now, if it's all pine needle, it intermeshes, it blocks light, it will basically create uh, an allopathic effect and keep things from growing. If you go into a pine forest, um, you're going to see that you know you got deep pine straw and very little growing up out of it other than other pine trees. It's a totally different situation than uh, I have this huge pile, this you know five cubic meters of material that I turn into one cubic meter of mulch, and 10% of it is made up of pine. That's not going to be anything harmful at all. In fact, you're getting a more natural mix like in a native mixed stand forest. That's really what you want. So now let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Chad in Plato, Ohio. Love the show. My question is about uh, college debt. Um, I want to get your uh, thoughts on this. My uh, wife and I got married several years ago. And we consolidated our college debt. Her debt was significantly more than mine, about $65,000. She had uh, out-of-state tuition for uh, six years. 
and mine was about 16000 So we consolidated it, made it easier for the payments. But my thoughts on this is it's really bad. It's kind of a morbid thought, but I have to um, pay her debt if something was to happen to her because we're both on the same uh, loan. So if you can give me some thoughts on that, that'd be great. Thanks again for the show. Bye. It's a reasonable concern, and it doesn't matter why you have the debt. What you're looking at is you have a two-income society, a two-income household, and you have debt that would be difficult for a single-income household to pay in the event that one of you should die. You also have a debt with uh, hopefully a declining balance and a period over time. So there's two ways that you can handle this. One is straight-up life insurance. You simply look at your total debt load and say, okay, I don't, we don't just need enough money that if one of us dies, we can pay off the house and the cars. We have to pay off the student loan debt. So you carry enough insurance, not just on her, on both of you, to eliminate the debt should it be necessary, in addition to whatever amount of insurance you feel that you need to provide for a lifestyle uh, quality after you lose the other spouse. So you just make it part of your life insurance planning. But I do have a way you can save some money on your life insurance, and I'm a big fan of term. Uh, for our long-term needs, Dorothy and I call, carry what's called term to 90. So that means it's very, very cheap insurance, covers us till we're 90 years old, but it's not whole life. And the money we would put into whole life, we do things like save it for ourselves. Okay, because whole life is a rip the hell off product. That's what it is. It's designed to rip you off. It does work for some extremely wealthy people for one component, one small component of their estate planning. That's about it. So term insurance. Now, If you have debt that's going to last 20 years, well, you can take that component of your total insurance need and put it on a 20-year term, uh, which will cost less than a long term like a term to 90 product. So there's another option. way you can even save more money, and a lot of people do plan, if they're going to buy a house, stay in a house, live in a house for good, this is our final house. You do mortgages this way with a 30-year product called declining term. Uh, this saves you even more money. It's cheaper because the risk the insurance company incurs declines over time, so your cost is less. And the way it would work, let's say that you had a 15-year um, plan to pay off the student loan debt. I think it's too long, but just to say you did. Uh, so you would take the total debt, let's say it's $70,000 to make a nice round number, and you would tell your insurance agent, we need a 15-year declining term product uh, in the initial amount of $70,000. And each year, that product would decline uh, so that, let's say, halfway through it, you'd be having $35,000 worth of debt and $35,000 worth of insurance um, allocated against that debt. So that is a uh, that is a one other program you can get. So if you start to look at put the, the reason I go into this level, because the easy thing is to say, look, you know, get a half a million dollars of insurance apiece or a million dollars of insurance apiece, and if you if one of you dies, you just pay all your debt and you don't worry about it. Well, maybe you can afford that, maybe you can't. So what it makes sense to do from a financial analysis standpoint is to put as much of that long-term insurance, cheap long-term insurance as you can in place while you're young. It's easy to reduce your coverage. It's not easy to increase it as you age. And then the other uh, financial needs that you may have to account for that are a declining uh, balance expense on debt, you can put up a declining uh, product against them. It's a strategic way to look at your financial planning. And if it saves you, let's say, $200 a year, that's $200 a year you can use to 
further pay down debt or to further solidify your life in some other way or to invest long term over 20 years, you know, $200 a year is what, four grand uh, plus the interest accrued in an investment. It's a significant amount of money. So there you go. I think I got one more and we'll wrap up for today. Hey, Jack, this is Lauren from Indy. And I was want to know what your thoughts are on U.S. House H.R. 822, the National Right to Carry Reciprocity Act of 2011. And apparently it passed in November in the House of Representatives and now is on to the Senate. I think it's got a chance. I just want to wonder what your thoughts are overall. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate what you're doing uh, with the Survival Podcast as well as five, uh, five Minutes with Jack. Like your encouragement and everything. Have a great day. Bye. Okay, for those that aren't familiar with the law, there's there's a law, like this guy said, that went through the House and now is going to the Senate, that basically what it would say is uh, there are certain states that, that have what's called reciprocity. So if I have a concealed weapons permit in the state of Texas and I travel to Arkansas, Arkansas also has a concealed weapon permit program, and Arkansas will honor my Texas permit with a reciprocity agreement with the state of Texas. And there's a large number of states that do that. There are some states that you almost no way you can get a concealed carry permit in at all. And there are states that have them. They have their own programs, but they do not recognize reciprocity. So you can't take your handgun permit from uh, Texas and carry in those states. What this law would say is if you have concealed carry in your state and you issue concealed carry permits in your state, and someone is in your state that is a resident of another state and they have a concealed carry permit for their state of residence, you will recognize it and you will allow them to carry. In principle, in principle, I find that to be a very good thing. Legally, I am not sure. And this is why. It sets precedent for the federal government to go beyond telling states to, to, to start telling states what they have to do with firearm regulations and that worries me because okay it's the typical thing you tell people when you know like someone's like this die hard uh, religious person of one particular sect or group and their message is being forced down other people's throats and they think it's wonderful and you say don't get so excited about this because Today, it's your side forcing this into people's world that don't want to hear it. Tomorrow, it could be somebody else doing it, and you've now set a precedent that it's okay. So one at one moment, this could sound like a really great thing for the free, firearms freedom movement, and then the next thing you know, the government could turn around in a Supreme Court case and do something completely different, and then the Supreme Court would say, well, there's existing precedent on the books, because if the federal government can force states to accept each other's permits, it could also, for instance, come in and say that that shall not be allowed, that they can't. I mean, it, it, it might look like a moderate risk, but it might be a real risk. It's the federal government going in and interfering with state sovereignty, which is very, very common anymore. The counter-argument that I can actually make quite well as, as well is that... For instance, your driver's license that's good in Texas, is good in Florida, is good in Georgia, is good in Maine, is good in Mississippi, uh, and anywhere that people can operate a motor vehicle, which is all 50 states, your driver's license is recognized across state borders to allow for, for, for healthy interstate commerce. 
And if a state tried to say you needed to have their driver's license to drive in their state, the federal government would probably come in under the Interstate Commerce Clause and say, no, no, we're not going to be doing New Jersey, you're not going to get extra driving fees that way. So if New Jersey said, okay, if you're going to be in our state at all, you have to pay a fee to have an honorary Jersey driver's license while you're here. The way you would have to do, let's say, for non-resident hunting, the Fed would probably step in under interstate commerce and say, that just makes commerce impossible. We're not going to be doing that. So it's I'm not sure there. Now, on what do I think about it? I don't know that it'll get through the Senate. It might, but I have absolutely no belief whatsoever that Barack Obama would sign it. I believe he would veto it. Uh, and I don't know that it can get a two-thirds majority to pass without presidential signature. So I don't think that it will get through. If it does, I'll be happy that it's done because in principle I agree, but concerned that it might set a later principle. If the federal government actually wanted to fix this problem, here's what I would say. That the federal government could launch its own concealed weapons program. There's no reason that it can't. There's no reason that the federal government couldn't say that we're going to issue a federal carry permit for those that want to apply for it. I, this is fantasy land, of course. If the federal government said, stood up and just said, you know what, our citizens should have a right to their Second Amendment. It should not be infringed. And the right to carry should be recognized universally throughout the United States. If the Fed set up their own concealed weapons program and said, if we give it, you'll recognize it, Hawaii, Illinois, Wisconsin, Maine, you're going to, whether you like it or not, right, then that actually would probably be better. I know that you think that would even further infringe on state sovereignty, but who is the most sovereign? Where is the sovereignty lie? Lies in the individual, and then with the local government, then with the state government, then with the national government. The hierarchy of sovereignty is supposed to start with the individual and work to the federal level. And the federal's primary objective is to ensure the sovereignty of the individual is not infringed upon unconstitutionally in our federal republic by any of the interim governments. The primary responsibility of the federal government should be dealing with other countries and protecting the rights of individuals from individual government actions at a lower level that infringe on those. That's basic constitutional law that they don't teach anymore because no one likes it because it's real. So, in that situation, what it would be is the federal government stepping up and saying, we're creating this issue, uh, this, this permit, so that people can exercise their rights, and this is a way to make sure that your state's legitimate concerns, that somebody's going to be running around that should have a gun, doesn't have one. And if states still wanted to issue their own permit and handle their own interstate reciprocity agreements, that would be fine. So it would be the federal government adding to the options and saying, if they have ours, you have to take it. Just like a federal agent can go into a different state when interstate commerce applies. Uh, if so, it's interstate. So if someone shoots somebody in Kansas and runs to Missouri, then the fe a federal authority can can exer exercise supremacy and pursue that fugitive because now multiple states are involved. Interstate plays in. So what they would say is this permit specifically for interstate use for people acting on their rights. It's a pipe dream. I don't think it'll happen anytime soon, but I actually think it would be a much better solution. The problem with the state reciprocity law, there are states that are keeping their right to carry by a hair. They're keeping it by a hair. There's states that it's very difficult, but you can get a carry permit. Uh, there's a lot of state legislators that want to take it away. California. Um, difficult, if not impossible, to get one, but it does exist. 
constantly trying to erode it. Okay, so if we have a and then the, these states also say we don't recognize these other states' permits, only our states' permits we recognize for concealed carry. At least there's some freedom there. Okay, so then the federal government comes in and says you will recognize. So okay. Great, that's that's good. And then some of these states that are on the, the thin edge, this gives their legislators the ammunition that they need to turn around and say and make the case to take that right away in their state. And say, now we have these clowns coming here from Nevada. It's damn give they'll give one to anybody. We can't have that. And God help us the day that some concealed carry permit holder from another state does something stupid with their gun. Because sooner or later, once in a while, a guy legally carrying does something stupid. Just like a guy legally driving a car does something stupid with the car. But we're going to make a federal case over that, literally in this situation, and say, look what you've done. And then that gives that state more grounds to take away the right that they uh, are tenuously holding on to. So that's why it's another concern. Whereas if the federal government came out, so we have our own program. States, you can do whatever you want. You can have it, you cannot have it. But if the person qualifies with our program, and even if it's pretty stringent, it's not mandatory and it doesn't take away the state's rights to run their own program or run their own reciprocity agreements, right? And maybe it requires a three-week school. And just so the federal government can cover its ass. You know, maybe it requires a more intensive background check. I don't know. And I'm not saying that they that we should even have to do any of this. I'm saying this would be a way to deal with our modern problems. Um, and, you know, that kind of wraps that up. So there you go. Uh, hope we had a good episode today. Sorry, I got a little bit angry at the beginning again. But it does bug me when I hear somebody say that a parent who is pushed to a point of uh, of having to to discard their child because they actually believe that will give the child a greater chance of survival, should be doused in gasoline and set on fire. That's why I got upset. And I'd like to talk to you guys here for a bit at the end, not really going back to that, but just about why we do what we do. We do what we do so that we will never have to make a choice like that. We do what we do so we can confidently say, well, I'm going to take care of my own no matter what it takes. We can say things, you know, because we can say things in discussion like, if I had to, before I give my kids up, I'll go steal to feed my kids. Well, what are you going to steal when there's nothing to steal? See, that's why it's important that we, we stay the course with our activities. We continue to grow our own food. Uh, it's why the, the political arena is something I talk about on occasion, but it's really not that important because those ass clowns are going to do what they've always done, and they're on a self-destructive course, and all they're going to try to do is keep the party running until they can pass the hot potato to the next guy. And the guys that inherit the hot potatoes are going to get all the wrath, and we're going to forget the 120 years of idiocy that came before the hot potato finally comes to rest. And at that point, we can blame people, we can yell, we can go out in the streets and riot like they're doing in Greece, and even in Italy now they're getting ready to start doing this. But it won't feed us. It won't feed our neighbors. It won't take care of our children. We can't steal food to feed people when there is no food, or when there's more people than food. Those situations are things that we want to avoid. The path to liberty is the path to self-sufficiency. They are one in the same. We need to be as self-reliant and self-sufficient as possible, not just because times might get bad, but because I could be wrong and times could get good, and then you can really live a good life. We have to do these things because we do have a duty to our children. And the, 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 the crime, so to speak, 
of these parents who have discarded their children in Greece to an orphanage today is not so much that they did it today when they have no choice. It's that when they did have a choice, when there was time to set up something so that it wouldn't happen, they failed then. Well, like I said, our country has two paths that it can go right now. Both of them lead to misery for a time. One leads to long-term misery, and one leads to short-term misery, and then both of them lead to a resurrection. There is too much wonderful about this nation for it to fall forever. It will come back. But how long between a fall and a rise is yet to be determined. And I want you to be prepared for either one. I want to hope for the short term. I want to hope for the Ron Paul solution. But we're probably going to get the Barack Obama or Mitt Romney solution, which is keep the ride going as long as possible until it crashes. Instead of let's accept what's wrong and fix it now. Either way, I want you to be prepared. Either way, I want you to keep hope. Either way, I want you to commit you to keep your promise to yourself. I'll never do that to my kids or my mom or my dad or my sister or my cousin. And the only way you can do it is by being strong and building strength in your own life. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another episode of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. Like there's nothing I could do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
revolution is you.